Our reading this morning is from Revelations chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Well, again, good morning to you all. Everybody doing all right? Hey, I'm going to make a statement here that I know is going to be deeply offensive to some people in here, and I'm probably going to hear it from a few of you at the end of the service. I think I've mentioned this before, and I've gotten feedback from it before, but uh, I'm going to say it again. I've never been a huge fan of musicals. See? Here it comes. All right, when I watch a show or I watch a movie or I go to see a play or something like that, I'm in it for the action or for the drama or for whatever. I'm not really there for the songs. I never understood necessarily why. Okay, now we're going to stop and we're going to sing a song together. But okay, whatever, to each his own. I get it. I've just never been a huge fan. Sorry, Jen. (laughs) Somebody's scowling at me over there in the front row. Two notable exceptions. Um, Hamilton slightly changed that for me a little bit. I didn't see Hamilton live, but I watched it on TV, and I kind of liked the songs and that. It was fun. The whole thing was a song, and which kind of set me up. Anyway, so I kind of enjoyed that. Second example uh, that maybe has changed my perspective on that a little bit, actually, is the book of Revelation. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, right, but as we've been going through the book of Revelation, it almost feels like a musical in a way where, you know, there's this rich drama we're introduced to these dynamic characters, which, by the way, if you're, if you're new with us here this morning, we're, we're working our way through this book of Revelation, uh, which is unlike any other book in the Bible. It's really unlike any other piece of literature that we're accustomed to this, in this day and age. It's apocalyptic literature, which means that it communicates its point through these vivid graphic images, right? But here's the other thing about the book of Revelation. It, it's almost like a musical, where as we're going along and we're seeing you know, the narrative unfold and we're being introduced to these characters and we're being absorbed into this rich drama, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, choirs will start bursting out in the song. Have right? you picked that up? You've seen that? 
And so really, and when we have one of those today in our passage, right? The middle of our, we have some action on the front and the back of our passage. And then right smack in the middle is another one of these songs. People just start bursting out in songs like a musical. Or it almost reads like a Lord of the Rings book. You ever read the Lord of the Rings? You know, where they're working through and then all of a sudden some trees or some little hobbits or whatever will start singing songs. You got that all throughout the book of Revelation. And today, just a little bit different than maybe, we're going to walk through the passage I want to explain, you know, what's going on here in the passage, but I want to, uh, I'm more interested in showing how this song in particular fits in with the drama that's going on and, and maybe touch on just a little bit something that we haven't touched on so much yet, how these songs operate in the book and also touch on how one of the main interests or aims of the book of Revelation is to get the church of today to join the heavenly choir. Right? The book of Revelation, if you haven't picked up, it's all about worship. It's all about who we are worshiping, who we ought to be worshiping. And so the book of Revelation, maybe at its simplest point, could be called just simply a call to worship. A call to the earthly church to join the heavenly choir so that one day all the nations are going to be singing these incredible songs of victory and salvation. Right? So I want to unpack that. I want to unpack maybe just a little bit as we get to the end how that influences the way I think about worship or the way that we do worship here. We haven't talked about that in a little while. And I would guess that, that maybe there are some people who think about church, maybe the way that I think about musicals, right? Why do we got to do all this singing for? Right? Why can't we just come, maybe hear the word, pray, get to the snacks and the coffee and the refreshments and the fellowship afterwards and all that? Why do we got to stop and sing? Is this some divine mandate from God? All my people should come in every week. They got to sing my praises to me. Or is it because people get some, I don't know, emotional, spiritual high, you know, and we're singing nice songs all together? You know, what is it? What's the point? Why are we doing this? So, again, we're going to walk through the drama, and I'm going to touch on those two points at the end. And here we go. All right? You with me? Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Again, we are in the, now the last, we're moving into the last quarter of the book. All right, we're making good progress. We're down to the last quarter of this book. And as we mentioned last week, we're moving into the section of the book now where we're really ramping up to the final judgment of God upon his creation and upon all that resists him in his creation. Okay, and we set this sort of up a little bit last week, but just by way of review, remember that in the book of Revelation, this is really good news, that, that God is coming to judge. This is part of that eternal gospel that we saw last week, which is preached to all the nations, right? which is counterintuitive, because we don't think of God's judgment as good news. We don't get warm, fuzzy feelings from God's judgment in our cozy, comfortable modern American lifestyle, we tend to think of God's judgment as at best unnecessary, at worst, uh, pretty harsh. <laughs> Which, by the way, I'm not so sure I fully understand that in our culture because it seems to me that our culture is extremely judgmental these days, right? That's what we do really well. We divide and we get polarized from each other and then without even listening to one another, we you know, assume we know the other and we cast judgment and we would love nothing more than to be, for them to be removed or, for, or to, for them to be canceled from any sphere of influence in the land that I'm a part of. Right? So we're a very judgment-driven people. I don't know why judgment should be such a harsh thing. But anyway, we understand that the judgment of God doesn't give us warm, 
fuzzy feelings necessarily. But in the book of Revelation, this is such good news. You know, imagine that you are, just to reiterate this point, imagine that you are living in a remote village, maybe a couple hundred years ago, before you got cars and trains and buses, you know, and the ease of transportation. And maybe because your village is so small and remote, you don't have a courthouse in your village. You don't have a judge on site to settle disputes and to handle injustices that might take place. But once a year, maybe, the judge from the city across the mountains is going to make his way to your town. He's going to settle any disputes, settle any injustices, deal with those who are treating people harshly or whatever. And let's say that in your village, you know, your neighbor is starting to encroach on your property. And they're starting to take over portions of your property. And maybe they're starting to take over the really important parts of your property, like the part where the stream is, the stream that, you know, uh, waters your crops and feeds your animals. And maybe this guy has acquired quite a bit of land and has a bit of wealth and resources. And he can buy people off. And so you can come and tell him, hey, you're on my land. You need to get off my land. He's going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. What are you going to do about it? I got a group of people that are going to defend me in this. You feel kind of powerless. Can you see in that situation how good news it would be to hear that oh, the judge is coming? And the judge is going to take up session. And he's going to decide what is right. And he's going to deal with those who persist in wrongdoing or injustice. Right, so you magnify that hundredfold and you consider the ancient church. Right, the ancient church, which is starting to lose, I don't know, maybe land and home or family or their job or their reputation or their even their own life because they're devoting themselves in full allegiance to Christ and they're living their lives as public witnesses to him and they're suffering as a result of that. Right? In the same way for them, this is great news that the judge would come and he would call evil for what it is. He would call injustice for what it is and he would deal with those who to the very end are hell-bent on persisting in injustice and wickedness and violence. Okay, and more specifically here, uh, we're going to, well, the past couple chapters, we've been introduced to these really shady characters, dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land. Again, this is what Revelation does. If you're new to the book of Revelation, it pulls back the curtain on life a little bit, shows us some of the deeper, sometimes darker spiritual realities to life, and it does that with the intent of shocking you, right? grabbing your attention, right? getting you to take seriously the condition of your spiritual health, or take spiritually what it is you're worshiping in life, or take seriously what it is you're, you're following with your life. And it's showing us these hideous characters that are waging against God and his people. This dragon, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet, the beast from the land. And pretty much what the next few chapters are going to do is just going to show you the judgment on each of these characters. You're going to see the judgment on the beast. You're going to see the judgment on the dragon. You're going to see the judgment on the great prostitute Babylon. And you're even going to see the judgment on those who to the very end... Say, give me that mark of the beast. To the beast devotes all my allegiance. So this is good news. And that's why you have here in the beginning, or this is, this is judgment, that's why you have here in the very beginning, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. Again, one more little 
intro reminder of the book of Revelation, the storyline is not linear, per se. It doesn't just flow one event from the other, but it cycles back on itself, often in cycles of seven. So now we're coming up on this last cycle of seven, these seven bowls, which are seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath and the judgment of God is finished. And in verse 2, he says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and its number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. Okay, so now here's the question. Where have we seen this sea of glass before? Anybody remember? Chapter 4. Yes. All right, chapter 4. We follow John as he's ushered into the heavenly throne room, sort of like the heavenly control command center. And we see the eternal creator seated on the throne. And he's got this glorious rainbow about him. He's got lightning and thunder peeling. But then in front of him is this sea of glass. Okay, and I, when we were in chapter 4... I jumped ahead in the story and I alerted you to that when we get to the very end and we see this heavenly throne room and this heavenly city descend in God's new creation, guess what's not there? There's no sea. Very symbolic, right? Everybody who loves the ocean starts panicking at that point. This is all symbolic imagery here. That sea is gone. And why is that so significant? Right, Because we've been saying all along, what was the sea in the ancient world? Right? It was the abyss of chaos. And unless you were a really seaworthy person, you had this terrifying dread of the sea. Right? The sea was where these monsters came out of who threatened to undo the fabric and the peace and the well-being of God's creation. And so it's significant that in the very beginning... When we're transported to the heavenly throne room, in that throne room, there's a sea. It's almost a symbolic picture that, hey, while the world is not yet right, and while the forces of evil, wickedness, and injustice are wreaking their havoc throughout God's creation, yet that sea is there, even in heaven. One day it won't be, but even right now, it is there. Okay, but... Before the throne, it is calm as glass. The sea's there. But it's like it yields to the voice of the one seated on the throne. Right? It's kind of like the picture when Jesus got with his disciples in a little rickety boat and set it sail out in the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. And the storm kicked up, and they're out in the middle of the sea, and all of a sudden the waves are tossing the boat back and forth. The wind is blowing, tearing at the you know, the thing, the sails, there it is, right? And, and Jesus is what? He's sleeping on the boat. And the disciples come and they awaken Jesus. I mean, Jesus, don't you care that we're at death's door here? And what did Jesus say? Oh, you have little faith. Right? Don't you know who I am? He stands up and he shouts to the sea. He says, I don't even know if he shouts. He just says, peace be still. And just like that, the winds stop their battering of the boat. The waves settle back down. Clouds part, sun comes out, whatever. Right? There's that command over the sea. Right? So that's sort of the picture here. The sea is still there. Those forces of chaos, they still rage. And yet they're still before the throne. Okay, but then here's the other picture. God's people, right? His saints are gathered by that sea. 
Right? And this is a powerful picture here, right? Remember, let's go back into chapter 13. Do you remember who else we saw standing beside a sea? I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm quizzing you a lot today. This is a big review day. Yeah, the dragon was standing by the sea, right? Because he's about to call up his secret weapon in this warfare. He's about to call up this beast, right? And you see the water start to churn. And out of the beast, out of the waters come this, these seven heads, you know, with the lion's mouth, and the body of a, you know, the, the leopard and the paws of the bear, right? This hideous monster. Well, now we've come to a place where now the saints are standing behind by the sea. And they've got their harps, the heavenly instruments, and they're starting to sing. And we're told they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So real quick, okay, here are all these questions. Why the song of Moses? What is this all about? This is actually really important because it, it, it really shapes this whole scene. Okay, think about the most climactic or dramatic redemptive event in the Old Testament. When God delivers his people from the Egyptian empire, right? The exodus. Right? Egypt, another powerful empire back in the day that was oppressing and enslaving God's people. They cry out to God in their distress. He hears their cries. He bears his arm. He rolls up his sleeve and he comes down to deliver his people. He afflicts Egypt with his ten plagues. He unleashes his judgment upon the firstborn of Egypt. So much so the Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here. Right? God's people go, go, get out of here. And as they start leaving Egypt, heading through the wilderness on route to the promised land, Pharaoh says, what in the world have I done? There goes my, my workforce. So he has a change of heart. And so he gathers his armies, he gathers his soldiers and his chariots, and they go and hop or seek. Go get them, bring them back. And it's God's people. They venture up to the wall of the Red Sea, right? And, and they see this wall of water in front of them, and they hear you know, the thunder of the chariots and the hooves of the horses barreling down upon them. And what does God do? He opens the waters of the sea so that they can walk through to the other side. And then as they turn and they watch, you know, the troops of their enemy enter in behind them. What does God do? He closes the sea on them. And as they stand there now, fully liberated from this oppressive empire, fully free now to live a life of worship, to live into God's promises and whatever now he has for them, what do they do as they're standing beside the sea? They start to sing. Let me read some of it for you. They start to sing. This is Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Notice the similarities between this and our song. You have led your people, the people you love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard and they tremble. You will bring your people in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. And then he closes with the Lord will reign forever and ever. Okay, so think about that for a second. <laughs> right? They're not, you know, as they start to sing on the, sea of the, on the banks of the Red Sea as they're watching the enemy forces 
drown in the Red Sea. Right? They're not singing here because, oh, God has demanded whenever we get to the other side of the sea, well, we should all get together and we should get our, our, our instruments and our drums and our keyboards and everything and we should start singing a couple worship songs to God because that's what he wants. That might all be partly true, but that's not what's happening here. Right? As they're looking at their enemy drowning in the sea, as they're realizing that now this incredible redemptive event has taken place such that they are free to live into all that God has for them now, they are just bursting out in song. As I was thinking about this this week, sorry, I still can't get over this, but like I have in mind game five of the National League Championship Series. Matt, you were there. Right? You can tell me. You can tell us. At game five of the National League Series, bottom of the eighth inning. The Phillies are down by two. This is the last game. If they win this, they go to the World Series. They're down by one. Sorry. Bryce Harper steps to the plate, takes a couple strikes, and then he reaches and knocks this ball over the left field wall. And the thing is, right, that night, and Matt will tell you, it was, it was a dreadful game to be at in a sense that it was cold. And you remember watching on TV, it was pouring down rain. So Matt and Rachel there are probably drenched all the way down. Everybody's there drenched and it's cold, but it doesn't matter. When that ball flies over that in the bottom of the eighth and everybody realizes they're only three outs away now from the World Series, the whole place just erupts. Right? Matt was going crazy. He's, he's dancing up and down. Right? right? You understand that. You say, well, that's the same sort of picture here. This is not obligation. This is not duty. This is them shouting in song because of this great victory that has just been taking place, this great redemptive moment. Okay, so this is why the connection with the song of Moses is so significant. <laughs> What is this song that's happening around the sea of glass, the song of Moses, and now the song of the Lamb? And they are celebrating the great victory of the Lamb over the beast. Right? They're celebrating this victory of the king who is seated on the throne against all those that rage against them, all those that rage against God's people. Right? Whereas the text says... Right? These are those sorry, who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside that sea of glass. Okay, and you want to remember here, how is it that they've conquered? Right? This is so important all throughout this book. Remember, how is it that they've conquered at this point? They haven't conquered by overpowering the beast. It's not as if some Christian cowboys all of a sudden came and got their lassos and seven of them flung their lassos over the seven heads of the beast and yanked it down, tied it off at the bottom with the, you know, on their horses. And then somebody with a sword comes and plunges it into the heart of the beast. That's not how they overcame. Right? The book has been very clear in telling us how it is they overcome. They overcome by the blood of the lamb, by the sacrifice of the lamb, and by their own testimony to that lamb in their words and in their life. In other words, they don't overcome the beast by being like the beast with all this strength and power. They overcome the beast by being like the lamb. Which, as we've talked about, is so counterintuitive. Right? Anytime we face opposition, right, it just seems our natural impulse to fight power with power, might with might, beast with beast. Anytime we face threats, right, the, resist, you know, the, the impulse is to throw up the defenses or maybe even to go on the offense, if we will, to, to you know, subdue, 
subdue our oppressors. All right? But the book of Revelation says, okay, fine, you can do that, and maybe you get some control back in your life. Maybe you work some justice for yourself, but know one thing for sure. That is not the way the kingdom of Christ advances. That is not the way the kingdom of Christ comes. The kingdom of Christ comes and advances throughout his creation as God's people entrust themselves to the victory of the Lamb, so much so that they are willing to live lives that are lamb-like, that they are willing to live lives of sacrificial love and faithfulness themselves. And what we find in the text that as the church does that, as God's people are lamb-like, God and the lamb himself, he is faithful to them. And he brings them to himself, right? And so that's the picture here. These are God's people standing with him where he stands in his victory. Which is a sobering thought as well, too, because where is this? Right? Where is this sea of glass at this point? It's not here in creation. It's in heaven. How did they get to heaven? <laughs> the beast overcame them, conquered them, perhaps killed them. They became martyrs. But what happens? What does death do at its worst? It ushers God's people into the presence of their king. He gathers them up. He draws them to themselves. And now they stand where he stands in his full victory. Right? Amen. Amen. Right? And so it's out of that victory, right? Out of being delivered from the oppression of the beast and now standing side by side with the lamb in his position of victory that they sing this song of celebration. Right? And I just love this picture of them standing by the sea, right? the place where you know, the forces of chaos come out, and they're standing by the sea, almost taunting the sea. Right? They've got their harps, they're singing the songs of celebration, almost like sticking it to anything that would dare come up out of that sea. Right? Again, sorry not to use another Phillies illustration here, but I love if you go to a Phillies game and they win the game, you've got to stick around to the end where they play Harry Callis on the big screen singing High Hopes. He's got high hopes, he's got high hopes. I sing that to the kids a lot. And I love the idea of the losing team in the bellows underneath us, right, in the locker room. I love the idea of them hearing up above them these songs of celebration. I know, it's a little weird. I got issues, I guess. But that's the picture here. They're standing by the sea and they're singing these songs of triumph over the sea. Now we're told that the sea has a little bit of red in it. A lot of people debate what that is. If you ask me today, I would say, well, that's probably, well, it says it's got fire in it, actually, and fire is usually symbolic of God's judgment. And so I would say that's a symbolic indication that God is now about to unleash his judgment on the sea, even. And in that, the people are standing around, they're celebrating. And they say together, come, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Notice the front and the back end of this song. The last line. For your righteous acts have been revealed. In other words, this is a song that is celebrating and praising the deeds, the ways, and the righteous acts of God that have been revealed. And if we had time here this morning, which we don't, I would love to do a deep dive into that word there, righteous acts. Right? Because anytime we see these religious terms of righteousness, holiness, sometimes we can all read them from different perspectives or sometimes different definitions. I can't do a deep dive this morning, but suffice it to say, as I'm understanding this, in the book of Revelation, and maybe even throughout the whole Bible, God's righteousness 
is his faithfulness to his covenant. What do I mean by that? This is what God does. He enters into covenant relationship with his people. Almost like a marriage. That's why the book of Revelation, you know, paints our relationship in marriage terms, right? He enters into a covenant relationship with his people. He enters into a covenant relationship with all of his creation. And part of any covenant is him pledging who he's going to be for his people. And even more than that, what he's going to do on behalf of his people, right? He makes promises. Just like when you stand, you know, before the minister and your wedding day, you make promises, you make vows. In the same way, God has made promises to his covenant people. And so God's righteousness is his faithfulness to those covenant promises that he's made. Which are what? Well, among other things, he's promised to establish the reign of his righteous king, of his good king. He's promised, as we've read numerous times, to put his king and establish his king on Mount Zion. And he has promised to advance the kingdom of that king till it covers every four cor- all four corners of his creation. And there is no longer any resistance to the goodness and the blessings of that kingdom. Which means that he's promised to judge. And he's promised to name that resistance and to deal with that resistance. And he has promised to deliver his people safely into that kingdom. To deliver his people from the clutches of the beast into that great kingdom. Right? And so here it is. God has done that. He's unleashed his salvation. He's about to unleash his judgment. He's about to bring this kingdom to its full climactic fruition. And the people are gathering and they're praising his righteousness, his covenant faithfulness, the things that God has done in faithfulness to his promises. And so they say, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Nations will come and worship you. Man, this is so significant. Remember in chapter 13, when the beast comes rising up out of the sea and the people see it and they see the power and the authority that he's been given, what do the people say? Whoa, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Well, now, as God's salvation has been revealed, now, as his full and final judgment is coming, the full purging of his good creation is coming, now, the responsible, who is not going to fear and give glory to this God? All the nations will come and give you glory. I feel like the book of Revelation, it teases me sometimes. It teases us because it gives us these little glimpses of almost worldwide salvation at the very end. Right? We've seen this before, right? You remember chapter 11? It's very similar to this. And this really is a review session today, isn't it? Sorry, I didn't really intend it that way. But you remember chapter 11? Where, you know, we're told about, that's when we're in this other seven cycles of the trumpets. And one thing we're told over and over as we're going through the trumpets is that yet, as God is unleashing his judgment, yet the people wouldn't repent. They wouldn't turn. They kept resisting and rebelling. Until the very end. When as the last couple trumpets are going, we get this picture of God's faithful witnesses. Who are giving witness faithfully for 42 months, right? That whole period of time, the age of the church. 
And the beast rises from the abyss and he crushes them and he conquers them. And their bodies lay strewn about in the city. And people come and they gawk and they dance and they sing over the bodies. But then a breath of life comes and breathes new life into them. And they're gathered up to the throne. And when the people see it, you remember what happens? There's an earthquake. Some of them die. But all the rest who survive, they fear God and they give him glory. Right? It's like there's this great movement in the book where God is taking the faithfulness, the sacrificial love and faithfulness of God's people. He's honoring that. He's using that. Like we saw last week, how our labors are never in vain. And he's using about that to bring about the conversion of the nations. But then it certainly does seem that there are those who are going to resist all the way to the very end. Right? And even as, you know, God's glory is revealed, even as his salvation and his judgment is revealed, yet there are going to be some who resist and who say, no, no, thank you. Give me the beast. Give me the mark of the beast. I give my full devotion and allegiance to the very end to the beast. I'll take up arms for the beast in his final climactic war against God and his people. Right? And for them, the way this chapter closes is sobering. After this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness, the tabernacle. Again, think the Exodus story. God delivers his people from Egypt. They sing the song, and then they go through the wilderness en route to the promised land. And what happens? God goes with them in the tabernacle. And he feeds them, nourishes them, guards and defends them, leads them en route. Same thing here. Right? God has worked this great salvation. They've sang the song of redemption. They're en route to new creation. And God is now coming from his tabernacle to defend and care for his people all the way to the very end. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. Right? These are the temple attendants or the tabernacle attendants. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter that sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week. I mean, those plagues ramping up in their full devastating power. But just as we close, right? So, so this is how this song functions. In this chapter, this song is this outburst of celebration. Because the righteousness of God has been revealed. His covenant faithfulness has been revealed in the salvation of his people and the coming judgment upon his whole creation. Right? And I, I want to point out one other quick thing. <laughs> the people who are gathered here around the throne, around the sea, because of the way Revelation cycles it back on itself and stuff. These are the same people that we saw gathered around the throne or under the altar in chapter 6. And they were singing and crying out too. But do you remember what they were singing? How long? Right. How long, O God, faithful and true, until you judge the earth and avenge the blood of your saints? Right. I like that picture. 
again, I, I like this picture that, you know, in heaven right now, there's a sea up there. Like, it, all, it isn't just all calm and happy and everything. Where's the, there's a sea there. And even the people that are gathered around the throne under the altar, they're not just in pure heavenly bliss necessarily, but they're recognizing that the world is not yet right. And so long as the world is not yet right, they too are joining the cries of all the saints throughout all history, all around the world, and crying out, how long until you judge and you avenge? And you make this thing right. Okay, and see, that's significant because I think that is the tension that we are called to live in as the church. Right? The church is called to take up the image of the lamb and to live lamb-like. Live lives of sacrificial love and faithfulness to that lamb in a world that might be hostile. In a world where that might cost you. Right? And see, that's the thing, right? We're called to do this while we wait. And we are waiting in a world where we know that it isn't right. Right? It doesn't take much at all to look around and to see that we're living in a world where the forces of chaos that bubble up from the sea are doing their worst. And wreaking their hatred, violence, bitterness upon creation. Right? We know that we're called to live out the witness of Christ in a world where increasingly it seems like it's a laughable notion, <laughs> God's intentions for his creation. Right? The broader culture seems to mock or, or almost laugh increasingly at the idea that God has good purposes. Or, or maybe even that if there is a God, that he would have some right and some claim and some ownership over his creation called to live out our witness in a world where we know our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering immensely, maybe losing their life at the hand of the beast. We live in a world where even all of us know a little bit the sting of the great weapon of the enemy, the sting of death itself, right? So we're called at, at one, on one hand to live out faithful witness to the Lamb, and on the other hand, we have to live out this cry of how long, O Lord, faithful and true do we do this? And so here's the question. What sustains the church in that tension? What sustains us in faithful endurance? The great cry of the call of the book. All the while crying out, how long, O Lord? I think the answer in the book of Revelation is the worship of the saints. Right? It's as we join that heavenly choir and we stop and we remember the holiness of the one who is seated on the throne. We remember the power and the triumph of the lamb who is standing next to him on the throne. Right? As we remember God's great salvation, as we remember his covenant promises, we remember all that is yet to come. And as we sing that and we celebrate that to God in worship, it's like the book of Revelation says, there is where you find your strength to keep enduring. And for 2,000 years, that's been the case. It's been the worship of the saints that has given them the strength to endure in their faithfulness. God's people, you who have tasted of God's salvation, you who have tasted of the victory of the Lamb, you who have tasted of the power of the Spirit, you who know what is yet to come are called regularly to continue in worship, to join that heavenly choir, right? to join that choir that sang in chapter 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is yet to come. Worthy are you to receive honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist. Or then the great chorus in chapter 5, where they turn to the Lamb 
And they say, worthy are you to take the scrolls upon history and unlock those scrolls because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and you made them a kingdom of priests, servants to the living God. Worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory and dominion now and forevermore. Well, when we come to the end of chapter 11, after the saints rise again in victory over that beast, Right? They say, we give praise to you because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage, but the day of your wrath has come. The day for judging the dead, rewarding the saints, and destroying the destroyers of the earth. Or chapter 12, when the dragon is cast out of heaven, and all of a sudden you hear the choir saying, Now has the power and the salvation and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ come. All the way to this verse, to this chapter. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's why, again, you ask me, that's part of the great call of the book. Come join the heavenly choir and do it so that one day all the nations will see it and join in. That's why worship is so important. It's why corporate worship is so important. It's why we take our worship here very seriously. We take very seriously how we plan out our worship. We don't just pick songs that we think everybody's going to like or give you warm, fuzzy feelings. We pick songs which are going to lead us in holding forth the great holiness and the great character of God. That celebrate his righteous acts of redemption and celebration. That lead us in crying out for help and mercy as we wait and as we try to live lives of faithfulness. Or songs of lament, which lead us to pour out our pain and our anguish and in between. We take worship very seriously here. We're going to actually have a series on worship when Revelation is done, just to give you a heads up. But I would hope too you would as well. I would hope every Sunday you would come here sensing, I need to be in the worship of God's people. You might not be a singer. <laughs> you may not like the style of the song. I get all that. That's fine. But if you understand the book of Revelation, it's going to say, yeah, you, you need this. You need to come and be in the gathered company of God's people who are extolling the virtues and the worthiness of God, his righteous activity, so that you might find strength to go play out your role as a representative of the Lamb. And look, maybe you're doing that really well, and maybe you come and think, yeah, I don't really need that today, I'm doing just fine. Okay, fine, but your brothers and sisters need it. Right? They need you in their times of despair, in their times of struggle, in their times of darkness, or in their times of joy and happiness to continue singing over them the truths of who God is and what he's done. Not to mention this is what you were made for. You were made to worship, and it's worship that conforms us more into the image either of the Father who writes his name on our forehead or the image of the beast who writes his name on his other four. You worship him, you're going to look beast-like. It's going to be inhumane. You worship the one in whose image you were created. You start to become more like him. You start to become more truly human. And so the prayer for all of us this morning is we might find great joy and delight and great strength as well too in giving our worship to the eternal God, to the Lamb who sits onto the throne and the Spirit who empowers and indwells his people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.